All right, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for an opportunity to come and to worship you this morning and to uh, honor you, and uh, that's our desire. Lord, help us to uh, focus in on your wonderful truth uh, and uh, guide us in, in our study of your word, and may Christ be lifted up among us. That's my prayer. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 17. We're uh, working our way slowly and deliberately through these first five verses of this uh, tremendous 17th uh, chapter of uh, the Gospel of John. It's uh, often referred to as the true Lord's Prayer. Uh, Some label it the Lord's greatest prayer, Uh, a prayer I told you that has been offered audibly by the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father because he wanted it to be overheard by uh, his disciples. In large part, I think, so that his disciples might know the certainty of their position that they have in Christ. Uh, The Lord is going to hand them over to the care of his Father as he's about to finish the work that the Father has given him to do. The Father has sent him into the world to perform that work upon Calvary's cross. And the prayer comes at the end of a very long day. It started uh, on Thursday. It's worked our way now probably to the very early hours of Friday morning. And we're literally just hours away from the events of the cross. And the cross is the very reason for why Christ has come. It is the most anticipated event in all of redemptive history. It is the very first prophecy of the Bible, the promise that the Messiah will come and crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin, promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that is about to come to pass. Again, this is why the Messiah has come from heaven to earth, in order to seek and save that which is lost. That he might come and reconcile the relationship between God and man that has been destroyed because of sin, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies and ceremonies and all those pictures of of the killing of animals, the shedding of blood, uh, to cover over the issue of sin, where the uh, shed blood of animals could never take away sin. It's only the shed blood of this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that could. Because he is 100% God and 100% perfect man. Sinless man united with deity, born of a woman, born under the law, who came at the appointed time to stand in man's place to be the substitute for sin, to be the sin bearer for those who would repent and believe upon him. Again, bearing the wrath of God against man's sin so that God and man can be reconciled, that God and man could be reunited so that man could be forgiven, sin, uh, Satan defeated, God propitiated, and the righteousness of God upheld uh, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's all of this and much more that is about to be accomplished on, on the cross. All of it has been foreordained before the foundation of the world by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, out of God's great grace and kindness, out of his eternal love towards men. And God had determined from eternity past, again before the beginning of time, that he would save a remnant of the human race who would forever, both in time and in eternity, worship and praise and adore the blessed Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain. Now we've come to verses uh, 4 and 5 this morning in our study, so let me just read them for you. Verse 4 says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, which, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
That's the verses we're at this morning, but as I like to do, let's just go back up to the top of the chapter and do a very quick review, starting there in chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So again, the Lord is about to depart from his disciples. He knows that. He knows again his hour has come. He has been telling them of that reality for some time now. But obviously they don't understand that, and and they have no idea how close to that reality they are. They have no idea how close they are to his actual departure. So this prayer from Christ to the Father, from the Son to the Father, is really a parting prayer also as it concerns his disciples. It's a prayer that he's offering right before his sacrifice, where again he will purchase through the merit of his shed blood upon the cross those men who are given to him from all eternity uh, uh, by the Father. A prayer, again, that demonstrates the intercessory role uh, that the Lord Jesus plays for us as he's continually interceding as our great high priest uh, before the Father. So he lifts up his eyes to heaven, he prays for himself, and he prays that God would glorify him so that he, the Son, might glorify the Father. So the prayer really is for the the Son to be able to glorify the Father. It's, it's really God's glory that the Son has in view. And this is right, as I, I've told you previously. Uh, when it comes to the issue of our salvation, uh, one for us by Christ, the primary issue of the eternal salvation, the eternal plan of uh, God's salvation is not us. It's not the glory of the sinner. The issue, the primary issue in our salvation is the glory of the Savior, and we would do well to remember that. The primary issue in our salvation is the glory of the Savior. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify him. So again, the Lord is asking that the Father would allow him to go through all the events of the cross when all the powers of darkness will come against him. Carry him through the cross. Carry him through the grave into that triumphal completion to the finish the work that he has come to do through the uh, time of the, of the resurrection. So again, that God's sovereign eternal plan might be consummated that God's eternal ordained plan for the redemption of God's elect would come to pass in time. Verse 2 says, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, or really over all mankind, uh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Again, this is the task for which the Father has sent the Son into the world, to give eternal life. To give eternal life to all those who have been given by him, uh, uh, given to him by the Father. And I told you that the Lord repeats that phrase in some fashion about seven times in this chapter. Again, identifying that there's a select group of people that have been chosen from eternity past that belong to the Father who have been given to the Son who will indeed receive eternal salvation. Those who are once dead in trespasses and sins. Those who are by nature children of wrath. Those who are uh, alienated from God. But those who by God's great grace and compassion have been made alive together with Christ in gra- by grace saved. By grace saved. That all to whom you have given me, he may give eternal life. And again, that's the issue. That's why he's come. And nobody but Jesus Christ can give eternal life to men. Because life belongs to him and to him alone. And apart from uh, Jesus Christ, men are perishing. Right? John three sixteen, a familiar portion of Scripture. For God so loved the world... He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's the negative. Apart from Christ, apart from believing upon Christ, the world is perishing. But the positive side is for those who believe, whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. That's what God desires for men to have. 
God wants men to live. God wants men to live. God wants men to have eternal life. John 10 and 10, the words of the Savior, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life. They might have it abundantly. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's why the Lord Jesus has left the courts of heaven and humbled himself in becoming the likeness of sinful flesh, that men might have life, that they might have eternal life. And that's the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, a Christian is a man who possesses eternal life. Even as you have gave him authority over all flesh. Again, this is the reason why God has given him that authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. God wants men to have life. And again, uh, apart from the eternal life that Christ gives, men are in this lost condition dead in trespasses and sins, still walking according to the course of the wor this world, uh, still ruled by the prince of the power of the air, still under the spirit that controls presently uh, those who, uh, who are the sons of disobedience. Now, apart from Christ, men, all men are under the wrath of God. Apart uh, from, from Christ, they're all hostile towards God. Uh, apart from Christ, all facing God's condemnation eternally. Therefore, all men are desperately in need of this eternal life that Christ desires to give men so that men might be rescued and they might be delivered from the wrath of God to come. And again, there's only one person who can give this life that all men desperately need. And that alone would be the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Because if there was any other way or any other means or any other person for men to ever escape eternal condemnation and the wrath of God, if there was any other way for men to receive the eternal life that all men desperately need, then the Father would have never sent his Son into the world to endure the death that he endured on the cross, the agony, the shame, uh, the suffering, the, the humiliation. But the truth is there is no other way. And Jesus Christ, again, he alone is the giver of eternal life. And anyone who seeks to have reconciliation with the Father or anyone who seeks to have... <coughs> Um, rec uh, 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 eternal life apart from him does so at the greatest peril of, of uh, the eternal peril of their soul. Because no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ, right? Isn't that what he said in John um, uh, 14, verse 16? Verse 3, he says, uh, or when we come to verse 3, he continues to kind of clearly, more clearly define uh, the issue of eternal life. Verse 3 says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, as we saw last time, because we spent the entirety of our time on this, <coughs> on this one verse, eternal life is more than just an endless forever. Uh, eternal life really refers to a quality of life. Uh, eternal life means to enter into a deep, intimate love relationship with God through Christ. That's what Jesus says. This is eternal life. Here it is, that they may know you. And I told you the idea behind the, the word know is much more than just an intellectual understanding or an intellectual knowledge. Uh, again, it's a deep, intimate, personal love relationship with the living God. That, that's what it means to come and possess eternal life. It means to be removed from the realm of condemnation and wrath and now brought into the family of God, adopted, reconciled as his child, loved by him. And since we are in his family, loved by him, we in turn return that love to him because now he's no longer our judge, but he's our heavenly one our Heavenly Father. And again, this is the purpose for why we've been created. 
This is the purpose why men have been created, to know God, to have a relationship with our Creator. And I said again last time, the absence of that reality in the large part is the reason for all the chaos that you presently see in this world. Men have lost that knowledge of God. And also, this is why there are so many professing Christians who struggle, who are discouraged, who are uh, to the point of despair, kind of stumbling through life, is they too, uh, living like they're blindfolded, with no sense of direction, they too have lost in great part uh, a knowledge of God, a knowledge of the true God. And I think a lot of that is because most of the modern quote-unquote preaching is practical. And how often do you hear in sermons that you hear outside this uh, building, how often do you hear a great preaching on the person of God, great preaching on the majesty of God, great preaching uh, on the beauty of his holiness, great preaching on the person of Christ? H- how much of the preaching out there in the uh, Christian realm is just nothing more than shallow? And, and if the preaching is shallow, then man's understanding of God has to also be shallow. Arthur Pink once said this, he said, a spiritual and saving knowledge of God is the greatest need of every human creature. The foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of his perfections as revealed in the Holy Scripture. An unknown God can neither be trusted, served, or worshipped. That's a great truth. We need to know who our God is. An unknown God can neither be trusted, served, or worshipped. And again, how many Christians have have an adequate conception of God as who he is, as he's revealed himself on the pages of the Holy Scripture? So I think what men need desperately more than anything else is a proper understanding of the nature of God. We desperately need to know God. We desperately need to understand our God. And again, more than just in a superficial uh, manner. Because without a proper understanding of the knowledge of God, many who call themselves Christian suffer needlessly under the weight of their troubles. Many in our modern time desire to hear preaching that speaks to perceived needs or topics relevant to their current struggle. And when what they really need is to have their focus taken off themselves, and what they really need is preaching on the greatness of God. All men need to hear God high and lifted up. And what happens in the modern pulpit is God has been brought down, and because that happens, men have lost the concept of the greatness of the true and the living God. So again, what men need desperately is a proper vision of him. We need a proper vision of God high and lifted up, enthroned on heaven, sovereign over the affairs of all the affairs of mankind. The one who's absolutely in charge of everything. The one who's in need of nothing or no one. And again, unless we know him and understand the purpose for why we've been created, unless we grow in grace and grow in a knowledge of our our Lord and Savior and and of our God, we're going to continue to struggle in life unnecessarily. So God's greatest desire is that men would know him. That men would know him. That men would trust him. That men would love him. That men would walk intimately with him that men would rest in the fact that he is indeed our Father in heaven, that he indeed has all things under control for his glory and our best interest. As we've been called to know him and then glorify him in our lives and then enjoy him now in time and then enjoy him forever. The Lord says, this is eternal life that they may know you. This is eternal life that they may know you. Then he adds this, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So again, Jesus is affirming his deity again. The eternal Father has sent Christ right from eternity into time 
The Lord Jesus is saying, I'm in the same category as the only true and the living God. Co-equal, co-eternal. And again, I reminded us last time that that phrase, the only true God, is really uh, a reminder that the opposite of knowing God is not a knowledge of no God, but rather it's a belief in a variety of false gods. The opposite of not knowing God is not the knowledge of no God, but rather it's a belief in a variety of false gods. The only true God is known through revelation. The only true God is known through revelation, the word of God. The only true God is known through the word, and then he says, and through Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's no knowledge apart, no knowledge of God apart from Christ. Because Jesus Christ is not, is not only the one who's come into the world to reveal him as no one else can, because it's only Jesus Christ who has taken all things out of the way that prevent our in being communion with the Father. Right? It's Christ who comes and removes the barrier of sin. If Christ had not done that, then, then there'd be no true knowledge of the true God. There'd be no understanding of divine revelation unless Jesus Christ had come and removed the sin barrier. And, and, and I make that, that statement, and I can't tell you how important that is on a practical level, how vitally important the truth is that there's no knowledge of God apart from Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 22, 1 John 2, uh, verse 23 1 John 2, verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. You've heard it exactly as I have. I was thinking about this this week, many years. How many people have I come in contact, and how many people have you come in contact in your life that say they have a relationship with God, but then you never hear them confess the name of Christ? You never hear them express their personal love for him as their savior they claim to know god they came to they claim to be close to him they quote unquote feel like they have a relationship with him now the truth is everyone has a relationship with the living god some are going to live before him in eternal life and love and fellowship but many are going to live before him eternally condemned under under his eternal wrath and the issue always depends on what they've done with the son the lord jesus christ John 8, 24, Jesus said, I said to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. So again, to have a claim that you know God apart from acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ is a very dangerous and perhaps self-deceptive position to place oneself in. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And again, you're familiar with this passage, but the Lord by his own mouth in Matthew chapter 7 to a group of people who claimed they knew God. They claimed they were very religious. They, they claimed again a relationship with God. They claimed they worked very hard for him. They cast out demons. They performed many miracles. Matthew 7, verse 23, the Lord will say to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. Terrifying words. To hear when it's too late for those who thought they were on their way to eternal life when in reality they were on their way to eternal condemnation. And that's because they rejected the words uh, of the Lord who said earlier in that chapter, chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, 
he said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. The broad way that leads to destruction, that's human, worldly human philosophies. That, that's worldly religious systems uh, concerning God uh, apart from Christ. And that's worldly philosophies, worldly religions, and all the considerations of one's relationship with him, again, apart from Christ. The way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. Then he says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and fear of those who find it. The narrow gate comes through Christ. The narrow gate that comes to, 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 that leads to eternal life comes only through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And when we reject that reality, when we reject the truth of the living God, uh, again, when we reject what the Bible says by way of revelation through the person of Jesus Christ, it's very easy for us or for others to fall into a category of creating idols in their own heart concerning who we think God might be and our access to him, what he's like, how we might have a right relationship with him. We just invent it in our minds. And again, we can't know how to have a relationship with God apart from Revelation. We can't know how to have a relationship with God apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the opposite of not knowing God is to not know no God, but rather it's a belief in a variety of false gods. He who denies the Son does not have the Father. One who confesses the Son has the Father also. Again, just think in your world. How many people have you heard in your realm that say they know God? They have a relationship with God, but they don't ever mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. A very dangerous spot to be in. Our hearts are idol-making factories, right? And if we can do anything to create an idol on our heart, we'll do that. And again, verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So again, eternal life is a present possession. It's something that doesn't, doesn't uh, happen in the future. It's a present reality. And, and I told you previously that eternal life really is a synonym for salvation. It comes only through Jesus Christ. John 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life does not come into judgment, is passed out of death into life. 1 John 5, 11, this is the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I have written to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And, and again, many times through the series, I, I said you only have this life to figure all this out. You only have this present life to figure out the issue of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no more pressing issue than to make sure that you're eternally secure before God through the person of Jesus Christ. And the only way that that can happen is you come to a true knowledge of him, again, by way of the Scripture. And the only way that you can have a relationship with God, reconciled, redeemed, saved, possessing eternal life, through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is exactly what Paul said in Romans 10, verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. 
for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now verse 4. He says, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So again, the work which the Father had given him to do culminates at the cross. So the Lord here is really looking at this whole situation. He's viewing it, I think, in an anticipatory way. It hasn't happened yet chronologically, but it's going to happen just in a few hours. And I think, again, the Lord intentionally uh, speaking audibly this prayer to the Father, uh, stating these things out loud, he's expressing his own confidence in the plans that the Father has sent him in the world to do, which I think is serving for the disciples around him, uh, a reminder for them uh, of uh, confidence that they can have in God, that they can trust the Father. Again, events are going to unfold in the next few hours that they're not aware of. And so again, even here, I think the Lord Jesus is trying to encourage and comfort uh, his disciples He wants them to know that the Father is in control of all the events that are about to happen and all the events that are about to unfold. And I think also it's an encouragement to us, is it not? That as we look at these events historically, and even before they happen, Christ has confidence in them. That means that there's nothing in this world that is accidental. The events of the cross, from man's perspective, look uh, horrifically sad and completely out of place. But from God's perspective, the events of the cross were planned from all eternity before the foundation of the world. Therefore, again, there's nothing accidental about it. There's nothing about it that needs to be modified, changed, altered in any respect. The cross was always God's eternal plan for whom the Father would send into the world from eternity into time his dearly beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority, the one who has all authority over all mankind, over all flesh, the one who has all authority in this world, the one who has authority over the sun, the moon, the stars, the rivers, the streams, uh, the one who is in control of all things and all things have been put in his hands, the one who is uh, the ruler of this earth, the one who's in charge of the kingdoms of the world, the one who is in charge over his kingdom, which he shall reign over, the one of whom from all eternity was anointed to be the one who would come into time, who would accomplish the work the Father gave him to do in order to glorify the Father and rescue sinners. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished or completed or finished, it really is the idea, the work which you have given me to do. I have accomplished the work. Now, obviously, when he says it in that kind of... uh, tone that the work which you've given to me me to do it obviously tells us it's something definite right the work something specific the work that you have given me to do again it's an eternal work we talked about this previously in some of our previous times together uh, we're in eternity past the members of the godhead promised to redeem uh, uh the promised the redemption of the elect that jesus would be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world first peter one twenty prophet Isaiah back in the Old Testament foretold the crucifixion. Isaiah 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, 
and be poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. All of this was planned. All of this was planned in eternity, carried out in time. The work, the work which you have given me to do, again, a particular work. And again, so Christ was sent from eternity into time to accomplish a saving work. Right? An eternal work he was sent into time to save, to, to perform a saving work. Again, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She'll bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save. Right? He is he who will save his people from their sins. Luke 5, verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Acts 4, 12, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, except the name of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4 and 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, that he might receive, that, that they, uh, we might receive the adoption of sons. So God sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the part of the appropriate time. The Lord Jesus Christ comes. He places himself under the law. He makes himself perfectly uh, uh, liable to uh, his own obedience to God's law. And then he's the one who's going to bear the penalty for the sins of his people who don't obey God's law. He came at the appointed time, the fullness of time. Born of a woman, born under the law. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, or again completed, the work that you've given me to do. So it's a saving work, an eternal work, a saving work, a redeeming work. I alluded to this earlier, but really it's a, a necessary work. It's a necessary work. Because if it had not been absolutely necessary, then in the eternal counsels of God, they would have never sent forth the Son into the world to suffer and die as he did. Again, go back to something I said earlier. When I, when I hear people say, well, I believe in God. I believe in God. I love God. But again, then you never hear them speak of the necessity of Christ and the necessity of his death. And, and apart from Christ, there's no hope. Apart from Christ, there's no hope. Apart from Christ and the finished work of Christ, there's no possibility of reconciliation. There's no possibility of the restoration of the broken relationship between, uh, b- between man and God because of sin. Again, those very same people in your life, those very same people you come in contact with, who say they love God, if you ask, what is the hope of heaven? What is your hope of heaven? Very often they said, they sadly will say nothing more than I just believe in God. No reference to Christ. No reference to the necessity of his incarnation. No reference to the necessity of his work. I believe in God. Look, that's not a satisfactory answer because the devil believes in God. It's just not a satisfactory answer. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Again, it's an essential work. It's a necessary work. And this necessary, essential work has been brought on by the problem of sin. And people don't like that. People don't like to think of themselves as sinners. People don't see themselves, uh, but the people who do not see themselves as sinners don't see their need of a Savior. Therefore, they don't see their need of Christ. And that's where most religious people are. Right? And I tell you this all the time. Only two, human, only two religions in the world, human achievement or divine accomplishment. And, and human achievement is never going to get you the righteousness you need. We need the di- divine accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. The issue is sin. 
the problem of sin and the issue of God's holiness, that's the issue. That's what makes the incarnation, that's what makes the, the work of Christ necessary. God is absolutely holy. Sin has to be dealt with. And somebody has to pay the penalty for sin, and the penalty for sin is death, both temporal and eternal. I mentioned this example a couple of weeks back. But why is it that God can't just, quote-unquote, forgive? Right? When, God, when somebody comes up to God and says, I'm sorry, why can't God say, that's okay, let bygones be bygones? The answer is because he can't. He just can't. If he could have done so, he would have done so. But he can't. Because the holiness of God makes that route impossible. And because God is exactly who he is, he can't just forgive sin like that. If God is going to forgive sin and remain just and justify the ungodly, then the way of salvation has to be consistent with the character of God. He cannot deny himself. 1 John, 5, 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is James 1 verse 17, the father of lights and with whom there is no variation or shadow of shifting. God is the eternal God, everlasting the same, absolutely righteous, absolutely holy, absolutely just. He, he can't just simply forgive sin. Sin has to be punished. And here again is the exact point where so many people who claim to believe in God are not believing in the God of the Bible. So many people who claim they believe in God, they're not believing in the God of the Bible, they do not believe the true and the living God. And what they have done is they have substituted one that is in their likeness, one who thinks like they think. One who will say to them what they want to hear. That because God is love, he loves me. Therefore, he'll just forgive me. Because he's my friend. But again, that's not the God of the Bible. There's so many people who don't understand the God of the Bible because they've rejected Revelation They've rejected their need of Christ, and they've rejected the person of Jesus Christ himself. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. So again, the character of God is the issue. The absolute sinfulness of uh, mankind demands in the holiness of God that sin must be punished. And again, Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that. Jesus Christ is the only one who can perfectly fulfill or stand in play in the place of man as man's perfect substitute because he's 100% deity melded with a 100% humanity and sinlessness. The only begotten, uh, the, the only one of his kind, the monogenes, mono, one genesis, the only one of his kind. And because he's the only one of his kind, God could make him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We talk about 2 Corinthians 5.21 a lot around here. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, 15 words of hope in the Greek text of the greatest truth, truth that any ear could ever hear, the substitution of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I have glorified you on earth, and really I have accomplished the work which you've given me to do. So this necessary eternal saving work is a work that only Christ could do. I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished 
the work which you've given me to do, which means there's nothing else for us to do. Nothing for us to add, nothing for us to contribute by, by work or merit. Christ has done it all. I glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. Note very carefully in that text, he's not asking us to do anything. Because the work of salvation, again, is something that he and he alone can do, something that Christ alone could do. Christ alone has done. That's why Top Lady in that great hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul eye to the fountain. Foul eye to the fountain. Fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. No hope apart from Jesus Christ. I glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Again, the work of salvation that necessitated his incarnation. Because again, if he's going to die for the sins of men, he has to become a man. And if he's going to be incarnated and die for the sins of men, that speaks to the reality of his character. Uh, theologians like uh, uh, to use a word called impeccability. Impeccability. Which just means the fact that Christ was sinless. The sinlessness of Christ. You see that all through the scripture. John eight forty six. Jesus boldly challenged his adversaries. Which one of you convicts me of sin? And I just mentioned what Paul, how Paul described in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He described Jesus as he who knew no sin. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4 verse 15, declares that though he was tempted in all things like we are, Jesus was yet without sin. Chapter 7 verse 26 of that same book, uh, the writer characterizes Jesus as holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Peter refers to him as the Lamb of God, unblemished and spotless. First uh, Peter 1.19, then he makes the declaration that he committed no sin. First Peter 2, verse 22. John said of him in 1 John 3, verse 5, in him, in Christ, there's no sin. You say, well, look good, that's okay, but that's, that's the home team. The home team's always favorable. Well, how about, oh, wicked Pilate, right? The Roman governor, the pagan Roman governor. After he evaluated Jesus, to the Jewish authorities, he said, John 18, 38, I find no guilt in him. Absolutely innocent. I glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Again, the work is to come into the world and be the sinless sacrifice. To be the one who is perfectly holy. The one who lives a life of perfect obedience and sinlessness. The one who is willing to come and die on the cross. That his righteousness would be imputed to believers upon justification. Or again, although Jesus was sinless, God treated him as if he committed the sins of everyone who would ever believe upon him. So that believers, although unrighteous, might be treated as if they had the perfect righteousness of the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Theologians call it the great exchange. He takes our sin, we are granted by God's grace, his righteousness. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Christ winning for us, not just a possible salvation, Christ actually achieving our salvation by laying down his life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Our atonement complete in Christ. 
I glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you have given me to do. Uh, again, the work that the Father would send him into the world to be the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice, God who becomes a man. He who becomes the captain of our salvation, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, our representative, the first representative we had, Adam, failed miserably. But Christ is going to be successful in all that God sends him to do. As the second Adam. Christ, the one who demonstrates God's love for us, and while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. The one who saves us from the wrath of God to come, the one who bears the sins of many, who becomes the source of our salvation, the one through whom we are justified, the one whom through we are made righteous, the one whom through we are forgiven, the one whom through we are redeemed, the one whom through we are reconciled to God, the one through whom we are sanctified. The one through whom we are given a future hope. Future hope of a, of a resurrection, First. Corinthians uh, 15, verses 12 through 14. Because Jesus Christ not only suffered and died, but he's going to victoriously do what? Rise from the dead on the third day, right? And because he came out of the grave, every man's coming out of the grave. And we who know him, we who love him, we who have been saved by his great grace, we're going to be raised to eternal life in Christ. That's the hope of heaven all because of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, all because of the work that he finished. I glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you've given me to do. Again, no one else could do that work. No one else could conquer sin. No one else could conquer death and Satan except Jesus Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews 2, verse 14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. It's Jesus Christ who comes and sets the, the prisoners free. It's Jesus Christ who conquers sin, death, and the grave. I have finished the work. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. I have glorified you on the earth. I have accomplished the work you've given me. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ voluntarily came from eternity into time. He voluntarily came to this earth. He lived the perfect life. He honored God's law. He perfectly kept all of it. He came to satisfy God's righteousness by bearing the punishment that he pronounced upon sin and the guilt of uh, those who are evil and in rebellion against him. And that, again, that punishment is death. We're all desperately in need of someone to stand in our place, all desperately in need to be delivered from the power of sin and death, the power of the devil, and only Jesus Christ can do that. And again, only Jesus Christ can do that, only Jesus Christ has done that, and only Jesus Christ can conquer sin, death, and the grave. That's why Paul rejoices in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the sting of sin is the law, but thanks be to God that gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? We have hope because of Jesus Christ. So again, God grants us forgiveness of sin through the work that Christ has come to do, he, that he's come to accomplish on the work. Again, through that uh, work, he gives us eternal life. And that uh, for, is not just only forgiveness of sin, but new life, eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. And as we talk a lot about here, or around here, that comes with it also a new nature, new desires, a new understanding with God, a new uh, desire to be with God, a new intimacy with God, a new walk with God, a new communion with God, a new relationship with God, a love relationship. We love him and now he loves us. 
I've accomplished the work. I mean, everything we need for righteousness, everything we need for godliness, for holiness in this life has been accomplished by Christ. He alone has done it all. It's finished. Nothing else for us to do except what? Repent and believe. Nothing for us to do except repent and believe what God has done through Christ. And then bow before him in worship and adoration and praise and express to him our own unending love. We know that the Father accepts the sacrifice of the Son, the work of the Son. Paul writes this, he says, Romans 1, speaking of Jesus Christ, who has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 4, verse 25, he was delivered up <coughs> because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. God accepted the sacrifice of Christ in full. The payment has been met. There's nothing else for us to do. Christ has done it all. That's why he says on the cross, John 19, verse 30, it is finished. And I glorified you on the earth. And again, I told you, it's the cross where God magnifies himself. It's the cross where God glorifies himself. It's where he puts himself on full display. His holiness, his justice, his wrath against sin. Arthur Pink has a very interesting comment. He says, he magnified his holiness on the cross. And then he says this, his hatred of sin was more clearly shown at the cross than it will be in the lake of fire. That is a really interesting statement. His hatred of sin more clearly shown at the cross than it will be at the lake of fire. His hatred of sin, I mean, it's just for God to punish the unrepentant as he will in the lake of fire. But his hatred of sin put on display when he willingly sacrifices his own son, the sinless one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why sin is a big deal. That's why sin is not easily forgivable. It costs the life of the sinless Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man as our substitute. His hatred of sin is more clearly shown at the cross than it will be at the lake of fire. It's at the cross where God magnifies himself. It's God, the, the cross where he magnifies his holiness, his justice, his wrath. But it's also at the cross that he magnifies the glory of his grace. Again, the fact that he will impute to all the godly the merits of the perfect Christ. As God imputes the sinlessness of Christ to all the rebellious men perfect, sinless Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for sins once for all the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, having been made alive in the spirit. That's the cross. Again, where God puts himself on display. The glory of his grace, the glory of his love for men in that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. It's an amazing view. Verse 5 says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which with I had with you before the world was. So, having accomplished everything according to the predetermined plan of God, Jesus asked the Father to glorify him with the glory he enjoyed before the incarnation. So again, it's a request to, to return to the glory of heaven, uh, to be exalted at the place where he had been previously. 
at the right hand of the Father, enjoying the eternal fellowship he'd always had with the Father before the world was. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, uh, says in this request, there are four things, four great truths that stand out. It's, he's helpful here. He says, first, Jesus asserts his deity and co-equality and co-eternality with the Father, right? By wanting to be glorified with the glory which he had before the world was. So Jesus asserts his full deity, co-equality, co-eternally, uh, co-eternality with the Father. And again, that, that truth, we know that truth from the very beginning of the book, right? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Prostan Theon, literally face to face with God. The Word was God, very literally, as God was the Word. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with the Father. Jesus, full deity, full equality, co-eternal with the Father. The second point that Henry brings forward, he says, Christ was eternally fully full of glory, as was the Father. Christ was eternally full of glory as with the Father. Therefore, Henry writes this. He says, He was from eternity the brightness of the Father's glory. Christ undertook the work of redemption, not because he needed glory, for he already had glory with God before the world was. This is a great point. He undertook the work of redemption, not because he needed glory, but because we needed glory. Right? We, we need what Christ is. Number three, Jesus makes it clear that he divested himself of his own outward glory to take upon human nature. Henry says he laid down his glory for a time, a pledge that he would go through with understanding according to the appointed appointment of the Father. Right? He's laid down his glory, he's going to pick it up again. Last point Henry makes, having performed to the full all that God had appointed him to do, Christ ascends to heaven, returns to the former outward glory, now glorified in heaven as both God and man. As someone other than me has once said, there's dust in heaven. Because the God-man is now there. Henry says, because that's all true, the person of Jesus Christ, we should seek the glory of Christ rather than the tarnished glory of this fallen world. He says, Lord, give, us, give the glories of the world to whom you will give them, but give to me my portion of the glory of the world to come. I just want to understand Christ more. I just want to have a greater understanding of him. That's what he's saying. So again, Christ has come from glory. He's fulfilled the work the Father has given him to do. Uh, he's uh, lived a life of submission, humiliation during his incarnation, and Je Jesus is ready to return. He's ready to return to the full glory that awaited him uh, at the Father's right hand. And Paul says, because that's true, all that's true of the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow those who are in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? To the glory of the Father.